Can you? No one's shaking their head, so I can't tell. Okay. Yeah, good morning, everybody. Um, I see you're lively this morning, honestly. Um, so last night, I, I couldn't get my son to fall asleep, my baby son, and so I decided I'd rehearse this sermon, and he was out like a light in about two minutes. So uh, you got that to look forward to today. One author said, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Let's go to John 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he spent some time there with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was abundant there. And people kept coming, kept coming, and were being baptized. John, of course, had not yet been thrown into prison. Now, a discussion about purification arose between John's disciples and a Jew. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that one that was with you across the Jordan, uh, to whom you testified about, well, here he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, Well, no one can receive anything except what's been given from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Messiah, but have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, and the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And for this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Or as the NIV puts it, he must become greater, and I must become less. My first paper in graduate school was about Saul. Not Saul of Tarsus, who we know as Paul the Apostle, but on the original Saul, Israel's first king. His story is pretty sad. You remember how it ends? By the end of Saul's story, he's so tormented by these demons of rage and rivalry and ego that he takes his own sword, puts it to his belly, and falls on it. You know, he's just gone crazy. He's turned against everybody else in his life, and he's got nobody left to turn on but himself, and so he does it. But the more I studied the story, the more sympathetic I became with Saul. His his story is really like a game of Jenga, watching it unfold. You remember Jenga? He rises to prominence. text even says he's a really tall guy, rises up to the kingship, but then pieces just start getting pulled out from under him. Now, admittedly, some are his own fault. But some are, I don't know, David pulling the piece out, Samuel pulling another piece, even God pulling pieces out. Seems like everybody's given a chance to pull these pieces out from under Saul. And finally, as they should, things fall apart. Saul, who did not go looking to be king in the first place, is rejected by God, rejected by Samuel. Samuel anoints David in secret. God takes the Holy Spirit from Saul and gives it to David. And that empty place in Saul is filled with suspicion and hate. you got to remember, when he's introduced, it says he's the most humble. He comes from the most humble tribe of all the tribes in Israel. Okay, most humble. But all that success has done something to him. So much so that as things fall apart and the crowds are singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands, Saul just can't stomach it. From that point on, the text says, Saul kept a jealous eye 
on David. Can't sleep till David, his competitor, is torn apart, brought down, like he feels like he's been. And I guess I study that the whole time wondering, would I have done any different? Is Saul a villain here, or is he just like me? I don't know. Would you have done any different? Uh, Maybe that's why I'm drawn to this story in John chapter 3 about John the Baptist. You know, Chris and I are starting this series, Thriving on the Gospel of John. Chris did an excellent job last week introducing us to this life uh, in Jesus. But here in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus is doing a ton of stuff Right. He cleanses the temple. Remember that happens early in John's Gospels, unlike the other Gospels. He turns the water into wine at that party because his mom tells him to. Okay. Proving that even if you're the Christ, you should do what your mama says. You know, he tells Nicodemus, you've got to be born of water and the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God, which is why many of us landed in that baptismal pool right there. There's this haunting line at the end of John 2 that Jesus knows what is inside Every person, if you think about that, your skin will start to crawl. And then there's that line in John 3, 16, we all know that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I mean, how do you preach through John and not spend time on John 3, 16? And yet, I can't stop thinking about John the Baptist here and this little scene at the end of John 3, which is a little bit like filling up on the appetizer when the main course is already sitting there. You know, like chips and salsa at Las Delicias, you just eat way too much. Maybe it's that part of us, that part of me, that can't help but tune in when a race car crashes against the wall and goes spiraling end over end. Now, you don't turn on NASCAR on Sunday afternoon because you want to see a wreck. You turn it on because you want to take a nap, right? (laughs) 500 laps in a circle. I mean, come on. But you wake up. You wake up when they crash. You don't turn the channel. You watch it in slow motion, okay? Okay. And things are running into the wall for John here. Things are imploding. They're falling apart, and we're watching. Now, when we first meet John, if you have your Bible and want to open it, there in the first chapter of John, the first verses, he has such a pedigree that he's introduced right alongside Jesus, the Word, and God, God's self, right? Which makes him either the second or third character introduced, depending on your view of the Trinity, right, in verses 1. Okay, it says he is sent from God, which is just about the best accolade, the best compliment you can possibly give somebody. I hope someday someone says about Eric, he was sent from God. And people keep coming to him. The text says in chapter 3, they are constantly coming to John. He's like one of those Choose 901 pop-up shops. Have you seen those? Anywhere they put him in the city, people will line up for blocks to buy a Choose 901 t-shirt for him. They just keep coming. In fact, John's doing so good, so well, people think he's the Christ. He keeps having to deny it, but it probably didn't feel too bad to be mistaken for Christ, right? I'd put that on my resume. People think I'm Christ. But then things fall apart. He's out baptizing near Salem, and who shows up on the very same stream of all the streams in the ancient world but Jesus and his crew? And suddenly everybody that's lined up in front of John looks over and they say, is that Jesus? What's he doing here? Well, well, let's go check on Jesus and see what what he's got to say. And John's crowd starts to thin. Everybody makes their way 
over to Jesus? By the first verse of chapter four, John's ministry has been totally eclipsed by Jesus. And by chapter five, John is just a memory. That's all he is. He's a good memory. He's a lamp and a gospel all about light, but apparently he's a lamp whose bulb has burned out. John the Baptist would not be invited to any of the conferences, Christian conferences I go to. You know, they don't invite pastors whose churches are shrinking. That's not who speaks to those conferences. No, when they invite somebody, they'll come out to fanfare and music and a really flashy video like the kind Russ has made for everybody else but me, right? Those kind of videos. And they'll come out and they'll say, oh, this is so-and-so, pastor of the largest church in the country, grew from six to 70,000 in six weeks, right? Okay, and this is so-and-so, started a thriving orphanage in Africa, has fed hundreds of kids, educated thousands, give it up for so-and-so. And And here's so-and-so, time man of the year, buy one of his pairs of shoes and give a pair of shoes to a kid in another part of the world, give it up for, ah, they walk out, right? Things, Things just don't seem to fall apart for people like that. There's this little church planner who was at a conference like that, and he left that conference feeling like we all do, like failures, okay? And he goes home and he blogs about it. He says, I'm going to start a conference for pastors and their failures, for ministers and their failures. And all of a sudden, he starts getting all these comments on his blog of people saying, if you start it, I'll come. And so they've been doing it for several years now, the Epic Fail Pastors Conference. The promotional video is this tea kettle that's falling through the air, landing on the ground and crashing, things falling apart. And so ministers for a couple days just get together and share about their failures. Their John the Baptist moments, church splits, kicked out of the parsonage on Christmas Eve, fired at the deacons meeting, right? Video says, come and develop a robust theology of failure. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go to that. That's the last place I want to go. I'm afraid I'll be a failure by association, that they'll rub off on me, right? On my list of things I want a robust theology of, failure is at the bottom. Why don't I want to go to that conference? Well, I guess it's that little thing called ego. Ego. That might discourage you to learn that one of your preachers has an ego. You can be sure the other one does not, just me. But think about it, it's a pretty audacious thing to preach. One author put it like this, we stand before our congregations and presume to tell strangers the secrets of their own hearts, even before we have yet to admit to all of our own. They listen politely and patiently, even when we don't know what we're talking about, and then a deadly illusion sets in that we do know what we're talking about. The ego is such a beast, he says. Well, let's not just talk about me. Let's talk about us. I'm sure I'm not the only one in here who thinks highly of himself or herself. I'm not the only one with an ego. If you're checking out at this point because you know you don't have an ego, you're probably the worst of all of us. (laughs) C.S. Lewis said, if a man thinks he's not conceited, he is very conceited indeed. And he wrote Chronicles of Narnia, so he can't be wrong. It's impossible. I think most of us, I think most of us are more like Saul than John. Because unlike Saul, John in the first three chapters, and I'd love for you to read them this week, just absolutely refuses in scene after scene to let the ego grab a hold in his life. And when people are lining up, calling him the Christ, he points to Jesus as he walks by, points away from himself and says, no, look here, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And this is something he does over and over again. He keeps insisting that there's someone better than him, someone who has surpassed him, someone else whose sandals he's not worthy to untie, says he didn't know what to look for. His one job was to witness to Christ, and he didn't know who to look for, wouldn't have known unless God shown him, which is to say he admits his faults. He doesn't pretend to be more professional, more experienced, more accomplished than he is. Like in a job interview when they say, what's your weakness? And you say, well, I'm a perfectionist. I just work too hard, people tell me. It's not John. Not a know-it-all. Admits he doesn't know very much. But then as it happens, Jesus walks by a second time and he says, wait, 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 look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A second time. He says it. And get this, when he does it, two of his own followers, guys who've been with him since the beginning, turn tail and follow Jesus. And he's just left there standing in the road looking at their taillights, right? And we think, aren't you mad, John? Why don't you respond like Saul? You know, take a spear and try to pin Jesus to the wall. We think that's what he's going to do, but he doesn't. He just turns to the rest of his followers who are still there and goes, guys, can you believe it? That was the Lamb of God. What are you still doing here? What are you doing here? So get this though. John's disciples are there for that. Both times that John points to Jesus and names him. There he is, the Lamb of God, right there. Look at him. You don't forget that, right? But John's disciples are just a little bit more like Saul than they are like John. They're a little bit more like us probably than they are like John. They've got that whole ego business going on. So much so that when this guy shows up, the Lamb of God on the same stream, they can't pretend to remember who he is. Rabbi, uh, that one who was with you across the Jordan, Uh, you know, that that one you were testifying about, well, anyways, he, that, that one, he's here and he's baptizing and everybody's going to him. They remember who he is, right? They're just too jealous to say his name out loud. Fortunately, we would never do that. We would never talk about those neighbors, you know the ones I'm talking about, who paid to have their Christmas lights put out. (laughs) House looks like a dream out of a magazine. We wouldn't talk about that family at school, always dropping off their kids in a brand new car. Seems like every week she always looks so good, must be getting Botox. Nobody's eyebrows are that stationary. You know who I'm talking about. Or you know that kid keeps... Kissing up to all the teachers. The only reason he gets an A, everybody likes him. You know who I'm talking about. You know, what's his name? What's his name? We've, we wouldn't do that. My buddy won Yard of the Month recently. Yard of the Month. And I started thinking about that, and I decided I kind of like to win Yard of the Month. That'd be kind of nice. But we don't have a neighborhood association where I live. Nobody gives out Yard of the Month. So I told Lindsay the other night, I'm just going to make a Yard of the Month sign and put it in my yard. <laughs> And everybody's, no one's going to think I gave myself yard of the month. You know, they'll think there's a new neighborhood association. They'll look at their yard and my yard and wonder why they weren't picked. And so I figured to throw off suspicion, I'm probably going to have to move it to somebody else's yard every other month or so, then move it back to mine. But here's what I will guarantee you. If I put that sign in someone else's yard, they are not going to take it down. Even if they have no idea where it came from, they're going to leave that sign. We'll see them out taking pictures by it. I guarantee it. Why? The ego. The ego. Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter.
Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, there is a road that leads to destruction and a road that leads to life. And one is broad and the other is narrow. Okay, so imagine that for a moment. Saul starts off on the right road, but it starts to narrow. And so he exits to that super highway of ego where he can go his own speed, get in the fast lane. He wants to be on that road. And when he gets on there, there's other people on the road. There's Jacob. Remember Jacob, who is so jealous of his older brother Esau that he steals his birthright and blessing, right? So worried about himself. There's Pilate. He's driving in the fast lane. Remember Pilate? So worried about his own reputation that he releases a criminal, Barabbas, and crucifies the Son of God. Didn't want people to think less of him. He's there on the highway cruising in the fast lane. And then we watch as John's own disciples merge onto the highway. They're so tired of riding in John's old clunker. They want to feel the wind in their faces. They got a shiny new car. People will be impressed. But John, he just keeps puttering along there on the narrow road. Been on there so long, he knows where the potholes are. Doesn't get distracted by the signs that say exit now. Just keeps going on doesn't care about all that stuff, what people think about him, how many followers he has, how many likes or retweets or shares, just doesn't seem to care about all that. Now, over on the highway, his own disciples have taken the top down. They've got their hands up in the air, wind just flowing through their hair, and they drive by this billboard, and and they don't notice it, but we do. And we look up at the billboard, and it's that old cartoon Pogo. You remember Pogo? What does he say? We have met the enemy, and he is us. But they don't notice it. They just keep driving on. The more time that I have spent reflecting on these first three chapters of John, the more that that point has come into relief for me. That the ego is the enemy of the Christian life. Now, it's insidious. It's not like all those other enemies out there that we identify and name. It's this insidious enemy that flanks us. We don't see it coming. Don't know it's moving in behind us until one day things fall apart and they do. And we realize the ego has been there all along. Now, in truth, we know that like John, we know this, our job is to witness to the Christ, to resist everything else, to build him up, not to build ourselves up, to point towards him, not towards ourselves, to make sure everybody is looking towards the Christ like John does, not make sure everybody's looking at us, which many of us assume we would do, right? As if choosing Jesus over ourselves is a singular life event. You do it once rather than every day. But we think, well, if I've got to choose, if I face a decision where I've got to choose between Jesus and myself, no contest, right? I will easily choose Jesus. But would I? You know, maybe we should ask Peter, who happened to do the opposite three times before the rooster crowed. You see, the miracle in John's story, and it's miraculous, is not that John is deferential to Jesus, but that he's deferential to anybody. Because he comes from a world in this regard that's not much different than ours, a world that values numbers, okay, promotions, success. That's the world he comes from. And in that world, John is this odd bird. We don't pray for our kids to grow up and wear animal skins and eat locusts and honey, right, in the desert and to lead churches that are closing their doors. That's not what we pray for them. But maybe we should. 
Because when things fall apart for John, and things will fall apart for all of us, it's okay. His ego is so in check, so disciplined, so defeated that it is okay. I don't think he's faking it till he makes it when he says, he must become greater and I must become less. He has just practiced refusing the ego for so long that doing it one final time when it really matters is no big deal. So there's this gentleman at Highland who is really successful in his company. He uh, comes from a financial background. He's a higher up in the company. I, I would imagine he's done well for himself. Great family, beautiful family. But you know where I see him most often? It's here on Sunday mornings when it's still dark outside. And he'll be back there and he'll be stuffing programs into your link. And we got to do that because there's a thousand of those. Somebody's got to do it. And he's always the guy who's out there doing it. And he's the person who puts out the peppermints that you all eat every Sunday morning before you get here. And he's the person that goes around and makes sure the trash cans are emptied. And every summer for that week at work camp when all these smelly teenagers show up at White Station to eat dinner, well, he's the guy that's emptying everybody's trash. And you gotta imagine as those kids walk by him, they don't know he's such a success. He's done so well. He's just taken out the trash. You watch that video about Marva, and I think about Marva. You know, in her world, she has risen to the pinnacle of success. She is a principal. You think one day, many, many years from now, they're going to remember Marva for her work as a principal. She was such a good principal. Okay, such an accomplishment to be a principal. Now they're going to say, you should have seen her on Saturday mornings. She was such a big deal, but she'd just be there rocking those babies. You wouldn't have known her from Adam. Don't you think that's what they'll remember? What do you think they'll remember about that guy with the peppermints? They're not going to remember what he did when the finances on July 2013. They're going to remember those peppermints, though. They're going to remember that trash. There's a gentleman here who's the dean of a local school, really done well for himself last year. What was interesting to me was as he became dean, he took in one of his own family members who was struggling. He and his wife took him into their home, okay, helped him to get back on his feet. What do you think people are going to remember about him years from now? Oh, you should have seen him as dean. Made some great dean decisions. No, they're probably going to remember that boy living with him for all those months. Hmm. If the Christian life is about resistance to the powers that be in the world, what John reminds us is, is that sometimes the thing that we need most to resist is ourselves. That unlike what the world tells us, or self-realization, self-fulfillment, self-actualization, self-expression, all the selves, that those are all the most important things, that the Christian learns to resist the self, to kill the ego, to kill it. So that at the end, when things fall apart, the ego winds up dead, and somehow you arrive safely at the end of that narrow road to life. When I was in college, my mentor gave me this prayer. I folded it up and kept it in my wallet and have since. I pray it as often as I can. So to end today, what I want you to do is to stand and say this prayer with me. This is John Wesley's covenant prayer, and it speaks to what we're talking about today. And it's on the back of your link if you'd like to take this home and and pray over it this week. In days to come, I hope that you will. Will you pray this with me out loud? 
I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will, rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven, amen. He must become greater and we must become less. Let's worship together. This is my desire to honor you.